All right, well, I thought what we'd do today is uh, talk about whether or not passivism or the idea of non-resistance is biblical. And uh, you might find this kind of an odd thing that has nothing to do with the series that we've kind of been doing. But I actually think it does relate very much to what we've been doing because, you know, what do you do if someone accosts you on the street? Uh, or, you know, or someone breaks into your home or in burning down your house or something of that nature. Um, but I also think it's relevant in terms of uh, the nature of love, what we've talked about in terms of what is loving, that you have to choose one over another in order to love. And so um, I think it's very important for us to kind of just look at this. And so what we're going to do is look at the passages that I think pacifists or those who are for non-resistance uh, view kind of take out of context. We're going to look at the context of these things and ask if they really do teach uh, what they're being said uh, to teach. So let's go ahead and begin now in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word, that it is a guide to us. Uh, we do not know what is true, although we want to claim that we know what's true apart from you. And uh, just by intuition, we don't. Uh, we need it revealed to us. And so it really doesn't matter what our opinions are. It doesn't matter what our intuition is. Our intuition is fallen. Our opinions are fallen. We are fallen. And so we need your word to correct us in anything we might believe. Help us to understand then that even in our fallen nature, we have read your word incorrectly often. And help us now to put it in context so that we might take it to what it really is saying and, and live it out. Uh, to believe what is being said and not to make up things, in fact, that are not being said. Lord, we pray all of this for the protection of your people, for the love of our neighbor, and for the love of you, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I thought uh, we'll just kind of dive into the verses and, uh, and go to uh, one that we've talked about quite often before, which is Romans 12. And uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about it a little bit when we went through Romans. But uh, Romans 12, starting at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. Do not, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what is this passage talking about? Well, many pacifists will take it and see, say, See, look, Christians are not supposed to uh, use violence in any way to defend themselves. But I would ask you then to look at this uh, as to whether this is talking about self-defense or whether it's talking about judicial retribution, because the very next passage is going to be Paul arguing that the church doesn't have civil law, so it doesn't seek out the retribution. That's the government's job. The individual Christian is not to seek out judicial retribution on people, because as the spiritual Israel, we don't have that right uh, we no longer, no longer enact the civil laws of the Mosaic legal code. 
and therefore um, it's, it's to the government. What he doesn't say is that, yeah, God's against violence now. He just says that, no, he gave that sword to the government so the government can be violent in that area. But I want you to notice this is not talking about self-defense. It's not even talking about what you do with unbelievers at all. It's really, again, talking within the covenant community, how you treat one another. Should you, if you are harmed by another Christian uh, in some way, should you seek vengeance upon that Christian? And so the issue here is vengeance, retribution, not self-defense. Uh, when you're trying to protect your life or the life of your little ones or, or whatever it may be. So this is completely taken out of context. It does not support a pacifist view at all. In fact, the pacifist view or non-resistance view should say that God's against violence. And of course, you're never going to have a passage that, that uh, says that. God is not against the violent use, uh, the, the rightful violent use of putting chaos down. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is the biggest one, I think. So starting at verse 38. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn, or turn to him the other as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray, to those who per- pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more, uh, sorry, that should be translated fellow, person of a fellow race, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So what is going on in this passage? This is taken out of context all the time. Um, If you just read it like that, it sounds very generic. You're talking about how you deal with people in general, probably unbelievers because they're un, un, you know, uh, evildoers and they're persecuting you and all of that sort of thing. God sends the rain and the sun on the righteous and unrighteous. So, you know, that's probably believer and unbeliever, right? Well, in context, of course, uh, first in the context of Matthew, we need to ask the question, what is Matthew talking about? Why is Matthew writing this gospel? Uh, you know, the gospel writers have an agenda. They're writing to a specific situation usually and for a specific purpose. And so we discern that purpose in Matthew as we start going through it. And I would actually go to the end of Jesus's teaching and kind of work backward even. So he talks about how the least of these brothers of mine are not being taken care of versus the real Christians taking care of the least of these brothers of mine. So right there, that tells you we're talking about Christians that there are, and, and the sheep and goats are people who profess to be Christians. And so it's Christians not treating Christians rightly. Uh, then we move back a little further and it talks about, you know, woe to those bringing stumbling blocks and harming the least of these. And that you should be able to forgive your brother. And if it a brother's in sin, you go to them and deal with them. So in other words, it's dealing with those sort of brother issues. Uh, I kind of skipped over 24, but the end of 24 is is that um, if the master goes away and he leaves a servant in charge of his household, 
Um, but he then gets drunk and starts to beat his fellow servants, that is other Christians in the context of the idea, um, then the master is going to come and cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the pagans. So we're talking about something within the church that's going on where, uh, where believers are mistreating other believers in some way. And there's, because of that, there's splits in relationships. There's rivalries going on. There's, there's people wanting retribution and all of that. And there's, there's, uh, you know, this sort of like Hatfield McCoy thing, uh, going on. And then we read a unique parable in Matthew where it's these, uh, the, the, uh, the parable of the sowers where, or not the parable of the sowers, so the parable of the, the laborers who, where, uh, the, uh, master decides to give the same amount of money to those who had been laboring all day. Uh, and to those who had come just in the last, you know, hour or two. And, uh, and you get in that parable the idea that there is a hostility of the Jews toward the Gentiles. That the Jews were always God's people and they should have some special favor because of it. And God is arguing that, no, you're going to get exactly the same thing as one another. And, and I have the right to do that as God. I'm the master. I can do what I want with my money. I can do what I want with, with my salvation. And so there's no specific higher honor to the Jews than to the Gentiles in that regard. And so you then see that there's a conflict that now Gentiles have become Christians, Jews have become Christians, and yet they have hated one another. There's been a lot of mistreatment uh, of the Gentiles uh, over the Jews, and there's a lot of hatred the Jews have for these occupiers in their land. And so there's also a hatred for any Jews that may have understood the gospel well, and are now treating other other uh, Gentile Christians as equals. So the Jews who hate them uh, would then be slandering them. That's what the persecution is about. Uh, insulting them. That's what the that's what the slap on the right cheek. It's a backhanded slap, uh, which is pro- most scholars think is a metaphor for an insult, not a physical, uh, not physically attacking someone. And so this is all very important because we're not talking about someone physically attacking you. And this is in the context of not the the general world, but rather the covenant community where uh, God is saying, don't take retribution out on your brother. Basically the same thing that Romans 12 was saying, uh, that instead uh, you're you're to treat one another uh, with good. And hopefully that'll bring about repentance, you know, the, the heaping of the coals upon one's head. Uh, that they'll they'll come about and and repent because of that and therefore you're they were using these passages because uh, Jesus says you've heard it said he doesn't say it's written he's not dealing with the law he's talking about a rabbinic exegesis a rabbinic interpretation of the law and he's refuting that Pharisaical rabbinical interpretation you've heard it said eye for eye tooth for truth tooth well they didn't hear it they read it in the scripture but that's not what he means he means. They've heard it used a particular way, that it's okay to get retribution on your enemies, even within the covenant community. And he's arguing, no, that's wrong. Uh, I, I say to you, that's the wrong interpretation. You're not to try to get retribution on someone in the covenant community. Likewise, love your neighbor and hate your enemy was being used to mean love the people who are friendly to you within the covenant community, but it's okay to hate other people in the covenant community. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. God, God doesn't do that. 
um, God, God gives his reign on the unrighteous and the righteous, right? There's, there's a purpose to it still. And so you're to love everyone in the covenant community, even when they've done you harm, uh, even when they've shunned you, even when they've insulted you, whatever it may have happened. Again, you're seeking the harmony of the covenant community, forgiveness and reconciliation, which you have all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, um, both in the beginning when he talks about going to your brother before you, if you're offering a sacrifice, leaving it there, going to your brother, making reconciliation. Later in the prayer, talking about forgiving your brother. If you don't forgive, then neither your father will forgive you. Later on, he's going to talk about forgiveness again, reconciliation. It's all about reconciliation and treating one another correctly. That's the context of Matthew. It's not talking about what if you're walking down the street and someone wants to, like, kill you. Well, you know, let them. Because that's the thing that Jesus wants you to do. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying, yeah, where is anyone killing anyone? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's saying nothing about self-defense here. Jesus is not overturning all of that Old Testament where God told them to defend themselves. And now Jesus comes, it's like, oh, you know what, I changed my mind. Uh, it's now no longer uh, an issue. I, I, I don't want you to do it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not overturning the Old Testament. He's in, uh, overturning a false interpretation of the Old Testament that allows believers to basically be at odds with one another um, and to seek vengeance on one another and all that sort of thing. That's, that's, uh, he's totally against that. John 18, 6, uh, uh, 36 Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, I want you to notice what this says and what it does not say. It does not say, uh, my kingdom, uh, or, or what it does not say is my people are not fighting because I'm against violence. That's not what he says. He actually says, my people would be using violence. They would be fighting. If, in fact, that was my purpose, that I was going to just take over the Roman Empire. But that's not my purpose. My purpose is to get a kingdom that's greater than the Roman Empire. I'm building a spiritual kingdom now in the already not yet of John. In the already, I'm, I'm going to uh, acquire the spiritual kingdom. Then the physical kingdom is much later. So my people are not fighting. That's the reason they're not fighting. Not because he's against violence, because he just said that they would be fighting. In fact, if that was his purpose to take over the Roman Empire, it's not. If it was his purpose for them you know, to be free from this, to not go to the cross, then they'd be fighting. Um, no reason here is given that, well, because I'm against violence and I taught them not to be violent. That's not, that's not what's said. So let me say what we agree on, because... That doesn't mean that Christians should just use violence without any sort of uh, regard to the situation or whatever. So everyone agrees that the New Testament and the entire Bible, I think, but especially the New Testament, would say that uh, a Christian should not be a brawler. So, And by a brawler, I mean someone who starts unnecessary fights or easily gets into fights that are not a matter of self-defense. Uh, there are fights that you can walk away from. You don't need to start fights in any way. You should, should not easily get into fights. 
Uh, that should be the absolute last, last, last resort. And only to basically preserve yourself or your family or other Christians or the innocent or whatever from harm. Last resort. Uh, everyone agrees that you're not to take vengeance on someone, that, that vengeance is the government. And so you need to take it to the government if there's an issue, if there's a crime committed against you, you're not to take that into your own hands. And so uh, that's, that's put into the hands of the governing authorities, which is why we're in submission to the governing authorities. Uh, they have that authority from God. We don't have that authority. And so we need to go through them in order to deal with those issues. So no one should be taking vengeance. Uh, no one should be enacting uh, retrib retributive laws or whatever and, and judicial laws. They're, you're not a judge uh, as a Christian. Uh, you don't have that authority and therefore you're, you're not to do those things. However, God demands that his images be preservational toward covenant or innocent human life. And this includes choosing to defend covenant or innocent human life over destroyers of human life. So here we have an aspect of love again, choosing one group over another. You're choosing to love God's people, to love the innocent, the criminally innocent, civilly innocent, over those who are criminals. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, struck down, nakah is the word. Uh, which is a typical word to strike down someone to kill them. There will be no blood guilt for him, so he will not be considered a murderer. If the sun has risen on him, then there is blood guilt for him. Now, uh, some have interpreted the last clause as referring to the idea that no one should kill someone unless he can see that the other, the other person means him harm. Um, Hence, at night, when he cannot tell, he will not be uh, guilty of murder. But in the day, when he can tell, he will be. Uh, I don't think that flies very well. Uh, obviously, you should tell if someone means you harm. But just it being day or night is not going to tell you whether the guy means you harm. People try to harm one another in the daytime all the time. You have thieves on roads that, are, that will attack you in the day uh, at this time. So that's probably not what it's saying. Um, I actually think it refers to the common idea in the ancient Near Eastern and in ancient Eastern law that one must make these things known right away. If you try to cover something up and then later say, oh yeah, this is what it was because you got caught, um, then you're probably guilty of a greater crime. So in the ancient Near East, a woman who claimed that, you know, when she slept with a man, it was rape, but she didn't actually call out when there were people in earshot at the time. She's still considered an adulteress. She's just making up the story. She's considered to be making up the story um, because she didn't actually deal with it right away while it was happening, trying to prevent it while the guy was trying to rape her. If, if she's in the city, if she's in the field and they say that there's something she could have done. But if she's in the city, that's the case. So I think this is talking about if the guy doesn't go and tell people right away, this is what happened. Someone broke into my house. He doesn't go to the authorities right away and say, someone broke into my house, and I struck him down, and, he, and he's dead. Then, but he's later discovered, uh, when the sun has risen, when time has gone by, he's later discovered that uh, he struck someone down, then it's going to be considered murder, and that he's just making an excuse that the guy was trying to rob me or whatever. Either way, however, 
the idea is, is that God is saying, you're not a murderer. That's not against the law to strike down someone in self-defense. That's, that's fine. You're not considered a murderer. There's no, no legal ramifications for that. God does not consider you guilty. So right then and there, here we go, right here. This then is what is in the law. And I think a big problem with this is that you have people who are either dispensational, which I think borders on almost neo-Marcionism, or just flat out neo-Marcionites. And by that term, I mean, Marcion believed that, you know, the God of the Old Testament was was evil, the God of the New Testament is good, and uh, the God of the Old Testament... Um, therefore was wrong and he had a different opinion of things than the God of the new. And so Jesus then is of the God of the New Testament and he has uh, completely different ideas and he's constantly contradicting the God of the Old Testament. And that's, that's the way he interprets the Sermon on the Mount. He ignores the fact that it says you've heard and he thinks it's, it's you've read and that Jesus is contradicting the law. You get this idea, not that, not that people believe there are two different gods, but you do get the idea to where Jesus is pitted against the Old Testament uh, revelation of God as though God changed his mind. Uh, God has a different opinion now than he had in the Old Testament. God is impassable. He does not change. If something is consistent with his love and justice in the Old Testament, it's consistent now. Now, you may get God to tolerate things that are not completely inconsistent, but they're, they're not the fullest fulfillment of maybe the creation principle. You have some things like that, but that's not God changing his mind. It's God being tolerant, and then you have the fullness being brought in. The fullness does not contradict the principle in the Old Testament. And so you have this principle of pre- preserving covenant human life that, that comes from creation, goes through the law, and even goes into the New Testament. So how do you preserve covenant human life when covenant human life is being physically attacked by someone else, you preserve it like a Genesis 9 way. You take out the murderer. Now, if it's a judicial thing, again, you give that to the government. They have that now. But if it's an, an immediate self-defense, then you would do this. You would take out the murderer, the person who breaks in your house. That's consistent with what who, who God has revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. He tells his people constantly. He, he tells them to defend themselves. They're to, def- they're to become fighters. They're to defend themselves from other nations. Um, they are to practice self-defense because that is creational and preservational of God's people. And therefore, it's loving God by preserving his community and loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself. So that loving your neighbor means you might kill the guy who comes in and tries to kill your neighbor because you're trying to preserve covenant human life. That's the overarching principle. And that is never to be rejected. That's never rejected in the New Testament. It's never rejected in the Old. It should never be rejected. That is the governing principle of all law is the creation and preservation of God's covenant community. So uh, some may object, or, or sorry, the situation is the same then. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it up, to find its fullest expression. 
And Christians are to live out the fullest expression of the law, not make arguments as to why Jesus no longer wants them to obey it because of some radical dichotomous approach to the Testaments. So in other words, um, we should not be pitting the Testaments against one another. We should not be pitting Jesus's words against the Old Testament as though, well, God changed his mind now. You, you don't need to bother with defending yourself. You don't need to bother preserving the covenant community any longer. Now, some may object and say that the civil law no longer belongs to the believer, and this is true. We just said that when we are talking about judicial retribution for crimes, but this is a matter of defense, not retribution for crimes committed. The individual is protecting his life and his family as government, as a government official in his own household. And so this is also important. So what does not change in the New Testament in terms of the sword is the household. The, the, the smallest unit of government really is the individual and then his household. And so he has the sword for as an individual and household. He doesn't have the sword to attack higher authorities. He has to be in submission to them. But he does have the sword as the household. You still are a government there. It's just talking about the other governing authorities that you're the higher governing authorities that you're to be in submission in. And so if someone comes into your household and the government freely allows you to protect yourself, you absolutely should protect yourself. You absolutely should protect your wife and protect your children. You have a responsibility to do that. You are a governing authority and that's what governing authorities are for, according to Romans 13. They bear the sword for that reason. You are to bear the sword for the protection of your family. And so it's not enough to say, well, Christians don't have government anymore in terms of those higher authorities because they're not a nation, a physical nation anymore. You need to say to yourself, well, Christians still do have the governing authority of their household, though, and the governing authority of themselves. And they should look to preserve covenant human life, whether that's their own life or covenant human life in terms of their family members over which they are governing. Now, Jesus' command to his disciples to take with them a protection by buying swords is consistent with all of this. Jesus is actually not inconsistent. When it actually comes to any hint of self-defense, this is probably the only thing that Jesus says towards self-defense, and it's in line with what the Old Testament says about self-defense, that it's perfectly fine. Now, however, this is Luke twenty-two thirty-six through 38. Now, however, he told them, the one with a purse should take it. And likewise, a bag, the one without a sword, should sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he answered. Now, pacifists try to interpret this. Jesus obviously is saying, you need to buy swords. Why is he saying it? Because he's about, to, he's about to be put up on charges as a criminal. They're going to lose him. He's going to be crucified. And so he's saying, as before, he sent them on their missions not to take a bag with them, not to take any sort of coins or money. They don't need any protection or swords or anything because he's, he's with them. His protection is over them in that regard. Now he says, now that he's going to be actually crucified, they need to protect themselves they need to preserve their own lives, so take the money along, take the bag along, and take the sword along. 
And if you don't have one, then buy one. Sell your cloak and buy one. That's more important. Defend yourself. Now, pacifists will try to act like they'll say things like, well, these are spiritual swords. It's like, really? I mean, is it spiritual money and a spiritual clothing in their bags that they're going to take? Obviously not. This is talking about what do they take on their journeys, their missionary journeys now, now that he's going to leave. Um, other people try to say, well, this is Jesus doing theater because he's trying to relate it to becoming a, a, you know, a transgressor, a criminal. And so, you know, they're carrying swords like, ah, yeah, we're a bunch of criminals. It's like, come on, come on. What's the, again, what's the coin for? What's the purse for? What's the bag for? Has nothing to do with criminality. Has everything with preserving their lives on their missions now, now that he's going to be actually be put up on charges and crucified. So Jesus is absolutely consistent with the, uh, the Old Testament in that regard. Further, uh, no one is to fight against the government. So, uh, I'm sorry, uh, let, me, let me go back a little bit. Um, the pacifist objection to reading these as literal words or literal swords comes from the fact that later Peter is rebuked for defending Jesus with his sword. Now that isn't the time, right? He's not to be, they're not to be using the sword to try to stop Jesus from obtaining the kingdom that he wants. And so they're not fighting for that reason, as it said in John. Um, but it's not because the Jesus is against, you know, the use of swords and violence and whatnot. Uh, so no one is to fight against government. Uh, government has the authority that God gives them. Jesus even says that to Pilate. You wouldn't be able to do this unless the authority was given you to do this. And so we're never to fight against the government. We don't have that right. A lesser magistrate, this is where I disagree with the reformers. I don't think that a lesser magistrate has the right to take up arms against a higher uh, authority. A higher authority, maybe an equal authority, absolutely, but not a higher authority. Because that authority is not derived from the lower authorities, it's derived from God. This is the difference between a Christian view of government versus an Enlightenment view of government. Um, the, the Enlightenment view is that it's derived from men, authority of government. The Christian biblical view is that it's derived from God, and therefore only God can give it, and only God can take it away, and only God can judge it. And we don't have the authority to do that as lesser magistrates. And so even though I'm a governing authority of my household, I cannot take up arms and, and myself. I cannot take up gar uh, arms against the government because the government is a higher authority than I am. But self-defense from other people who are on your level of authority uh, is perfectly permissible. In fact, I would say that you absolutely should do it if you are to love your neighbor and love God who commands you to preserve the covenant community. And that's God's goal, filling up the earth with his covenant human images, not filling up the earth with his people in general. And so you are to guard that community. And so self-defense from other people in the populace or criminals who seek to do you or your family harm is absolutely required by the creation mandate. God's people are to preserve their lives and the lives of other Christians and even innocents who may turn out to be God's elect one day. Notice that even Jesus says in the John passage that the kingdom he was trying to secure by his work was of this world. Uh, if, it, uh, if it was of this world, his followers would be fighting. And we pointed that, that out before. Uh, but there's nothing inherently wrong with God's people fighting or killing in self-defense or he would not have commanded that they are to do so. So God would have never commanded that if it's inconsistent with, with love and justice. Because remember, 
God is love. And so his telling his people to defend themselves is an act of love. Very important to understand that. And why is it an act of love? Because he's loving these people over these people. Loving them, hating them. Choosing them, not choosing them. Choosing their lives and the security of their lives over the security of the life of those who don't belong to him. That's the exclusivity of God. And why we need to understand that exclusivity has everything to do with this whole point. That you are seeking to um, preserve the covenant community. So the real problem with the pacifist standpoint is that it pits Jesus against the God of the Old Testament. As though Jesus isn't Yahweh who commands his people to defend themselves. As though Jesus is someone completely new with completely new ideas and he's not, he's not propagating the Old Testament uh, revelation of God. Well, again, this is a really big problem. It's the problem of Enlightenment religion, because that's what the way the Enlightenment wants to present it. The Hegelian view to where people evolve in their ideas of who God is. And so the Old Testament is a lesser evolved idea of God. And then you get to Jesus, who's the more evolved version of God. You know, the Jesus who says he's going to cut his enemies to pieces. <laughs> And assign them with the place with the unbelievers, or he's going to come back and destroy the city, um, or he's going to send people to hell. I don't know where the, people get the idea that he's less violent. Uh, Paul says we're going to be relieved from our enemies when he returns, and he deals out flaming fire upon our enemies. That doesn't quite seem like pacifist Jesus very much. The Jesus who flips over tables in the temple doesn't seem like non-resistance very much. And so he is Yahweh who tells his people, you're to kill these other people when it, when it has to do with like protecting yourself. Uh, and he even tells them in the Old Testament, of course, even from spiritual harm, the, the church doesn't do that uh, because we're not a physical nation. But he even has his people in the Old Testament protect themselves from spiritual harm because they are government and they have the sword for all of that. So uh, let's see. Um, another point that we've been kind of circling this entire time is that God himself is violent. God himself is violent. I, I can't help but say that even though the pacifist and non-resistant view would say, well, God can be violent because God has that right and what, whatnot. There does seem to be a hint of the idea that it's unloving and unrighteous and violence is just bad. Um. And so even though they'll kind of, you know, tip their hat toward that idea that God is violent, it does seem to be something they're arguing is inconsistent with his nature and inconsistent with Jesus's revelation of who God is and inconsistent with Jesus and who Jesus is. And that's why I want to point out that God is violent. He uses violence continually. God kills people every day, every day. God directly in the Old Testament and in the New kills people. What do you think the Ananias and Sapphira thing was all about? It doesn't seem like God changed his mind in using violence there. And it's through the words of Peter, by the way, that that violence is brought about. Violence is brought about when we hand people over to Satan because it's for their physical destruction. Paul says the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of judgment when he's talking about the immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5. God kills people and makes them really sick and does harm to them uh, when they don't treat communion properly. 
Uh, God puts the immoral uh, believers in Revelation 2 and 3 on, on sick beds because of their wickedness and even kills them. And so this idea that God's like not violent is an odd idea. I mean, you know, an angel strikes Herod dead when he, he lifts himself up. God uses violence all the time, both in the Old and the New Testament. He'll come back and use violence according to the New Testament. And so God is violent. And yet, we understand that God is love. So the violence cannot be something in contradiction to God being love, which means that love demands God to be violent in certain situations toward those who would harm his people. Love demands violence in those situations. Very important to understand. If that's true, then, then loving someone means in some situations that you must be violent toward those who would harm them. You must defend them with violence as God defends his people, as Jesus will defend his people and does defend his people. So the idea that somehow, well, this is inconsistent with who Jesus is. It's inconsistent with who God, you know, the revelation of God we have in Scripture. Absolutely not. It absolutely is not. It's totally consistent. The inconsistency is seeing God be violent in all these different ways toward the enemies of his people and then say, oh, but you, you, you don't, don't be like that because it's unloving. Not true. Love demands violence in certain situations. So uh, God is violent as his love demands him to be so. The old tired idea that the God of the Old Testament is violent and wrathful and the God of the new through Jesus is nonviolent and loving is nonsense. God is impassable. He does not change. And therefore he is just as violent today as he has always been toward those agents of chaos who threaten his people. Now, uh, like I said, many will, will admit that, that God is violent, but they won't see that love is consistent with violence, and therefore that's why God is violent in those ways. But the work of the image we understand then is that God actually commands his people to be violent from the very earliest times in the, in the Old Testament, Genesis 9. What are you to be, do with murderers as the image of God? What's the image of God is, who's supposed to seek the life of the covenant community to create and preserve covenant human life how do you do that when you come up with a murderer? You kill the murderer. Genesis 9. That is consistent through the law. What do you do with people who threaten the covenant community? You kill them. Because not only, there's, I say spiritual harm, but reality, the spiritual harm would bring about physical harm, right? So ultimately, the person is a physical murderer in, in ancient Israel. Um, not true today because, again, we don't have those civil judgments, but in self-defense, it would remain the same. Uh, in Esther, when the king has ordered that everyone in the kingdom can do violence toward the Jews, it seems that they're at a loss because they're not allowed to fight back. So that's them submitting to government. They're not the government themselves. So they're in a similar situation that we're in as Christians. They, they don't have a physical government themselves. They're in Persia. Uh, they're under that higher authority, and that higher authority is not going to allow them to fight back. It's, it's, it's issued an edict that says people can harm you and take your stuff. The second edict 
that the king gives is that you can defend yourself. And the Jews rejoice, and there's a celebration of Purim. It's a celebration that Jesus likely, according to John 5, it's you know extrapolated from that, that Jesus is celebrating the Feast of Purim, which is a feast that celebrates self-defense. That you can defend yourself in these situations. And it's seen in Esther as a providence of God that he is working to allow his people to defend themselves physically from physical harm. And again, they're in a situation like us. They're, they're not in a situation like under the Mosaic Covenant in the wilderness. They're not in a situation under the Davidic king. They're not in, in that situation. They're in the same situation we are under a different government, under a different authority. And they're submitting to authority as we should. But as soon as that authority says, yeah, you can defend yourself, what is it? You defend yourself, good, great. And the people of God rejoice and it's a, a provision of God given to them. And it's celebrated, likely even by Jesus, who supposedly is nonviolent, yet he's celebrating a festival that celebrates that you can use violence in self-defense. Again, these inconsistencies that I think uh, pacifists don't take into account. So it's the job of the image within government of oneself or one's family to take the life of another, if necessary in order to preserve the life of God's covenant community, to refuse to do so is to hate God, because you're not choosing God's goals of preserving the covenant community then on the, on the earth, and to hate one's neighbor, because you're not choosing your fellow covenant member, and that's what the neighbor is, according to what we talked about last week, remember. You're choosing actually to love the enemies of God over God, over his people, and to fill up the earth with Satan's images which is Satan's goal. That's great. If you allow everyone to come in and, and people can just murder and destroy all of God's people, then the earth is filled up with Satan's images. I mean, that, that's completely counter to what God wants you to do. So any groups, religious or otherwise, who take up arms against the government are in rebellion against God. That's very clear and should be put down by the government and put down violently if necessary. Um, but any Christians who put down violence among the populace and equal authority against themselves or others is doing his duty in loving God and his neighbor as himself. He has become the image of God who preserves covenant human life and should be held in the highest esteem as a godly man reflecting his creator and his savior through the right use of violence. So it's being angry and not sinning. It's using violence and not sinning. It's doing those things without sinning. In other words, violence isn't evil because it's violence. Otherwise, God would be evil for using violence. Violence is evil in its wrongful use. That is when it's used to not create and preserve covenant human life. When it's used against God's goals of filling up the earth with his people, with his elect. That's why it's wrong the wrong kind of violence. So I think from all this, we can extrapolate some ideas. So let's go through them. One, violence is never to be taken by the Christian against his own government because it is a servant of God to be obeyed as God's ambassador. We do not uh, take hold of the kingdom of Christ by toppling a government of this world. So it is not the Christian's place to do so. 
All such violence should be condemned by the Christian and the, gov- the government should be encouraged by the church to put it down much in the same way that Martin Luther encouraged the government to put down the peasant revolt. If you've ever read Luther's, you know, against the, uh, I forget what it's called exactly, something like the, uh, the violent hordes or whatever, whatever he calls it. He writes this to the German authorities that they need to put down the peasant revolt and violently so. Because they are rebelling against God in the most wicked of ways. So what you're seeing out on the streets with riots and this sort of rebellious protest against government is absolutely wicked. In no way is this okay. I'm not talking about peaceful protest and appealing to government in the way that it should. The the Bible's filled with instances of you appealing to government. Absolutely. Absolutely should do that. Respectfully respectfully to the government. That would be a different point that I make. But ultimately, all such violence that's used should be condemned. You should be hearing Christians at all uh, being like, well, you know, they, yeah, you know, people have been oppressed for so long. Most of the people doing violence are Ivy League white college kids. Give me a break. They're not oppressed. They're spoiled brats, and they're not getting exactly what they want, and they want to take down government because they think that everything's an injustice and everything's evil and whatnot. Either way, they don't have the authority to do so. Government should put them down and the church should encourage government to put them down, even violently if necessary. Because again, the government has the sword. If it needs to, not, not an excessive use of it, but if it needs to use it, it should. Two, peaceful protests that are respectful appeals to the government that do not dishonor or degrade its authority are encouraged by scripture as long as the government allows it. Um, Paul protests that he is not to be whipped as a Roman citizen without a trial. There are defenses made in court. Uh, the widow, you know, seeks in the parable, the widow seeking the judge, constantly knocking on his door, trying to get justice from him. Uh, however, these are always for the sake of the gospel, usually in the New Testament. And those who proclaim it are not causing a ruckus over a social justice issue that may get in the way of preaching the gospel, because the gospel is seen as primary. Preaching that is primary. Setting a road and a pathway to preach it is primary. So we don't then, like, topple government because, well, of some other issue. The gospel needs to be the primary goal. <clears throat> but if there is some other injustice, you're fine for protesting government. Uh, again, Christ's kingdom is not of this world, so we're not trying to make this world his kingdom. Uh, but rather transfer others out of it into his kingdom through the gospel. So that's why the gospel is primary. Now, I would say this. I think the degradation of government officials by Christians is absolutely appalling. You are degrading an authority that comes from God. Forget the individual. I don't care what their moral status is. That's why, look, Paul and Peter can say uh, that the Roman emperors, who are not the greatest people in the world— should be honored and respected. Why? They should be feared. Why? Because it's the fear of God through them. God is manifesting his authority through them, his authority through them, not his character. And therefore, authority should always be respected because once you degrade authority, it doesn't matter who's in it, you've now degraded authority to where you're going to end up in anarchy and chaos. No matter if the the guy you put in it now is the guy you like, so now you're going to speak well of it, but now the guy isn't the guy you like, so you're going you're to speak poorly of him. Well, you're destroying authority itself. Forget the person who's in it. 
And you're attacking God who put the person in authority, according to the Bible. And so that's absolutely wicked. So degrading, and I've said this, look, I don't care who is president. I don't care who's in office. I've said this from the earliest time that I I learned the Bible, uh, probably more so under uh, Clinton, when Christians would degrade Clinton, and then you had other people degrading George W. Bush, and then you had other people degrading Obama, and then you had other people degrading now Trump. Ultimately, this is all wicked. I don't care what your views are. I don't care what your political stance is. The Bible says you're not to do this. The authority is from God. You are not, when Paul finds out, he, he calls the, uh, the, the priest in Jerusalem a whitewashed wall. When he finds out that he's a governing authority, he repents and says, oh, I didn't know that because it's written, you shall not speak anything bad about a ruler of your people. Now that's a priest of the priesthood who just crucified Christ. Well, you shouldn't give them any respect, right? They have what respect should you give them? They're not governing authorities in terms of in the church, but they are governing authorities in Jerusalem. They have some authority there, and so Paul says you're not to speak evil of them. So I don't care what the authorities have done, whether you're talking about Tiberius, who was an absolute tyrant, Caligula, who was an absolute psychopath, or Nero, who was also a psychopath. It doesn't matter. It's the authority itself that should not be degraded by degrading the person in it. And that's true if you're talking about Democratic officials, Republican officials. I don't care. We Christians should be supporting authority, not withdrawing from it, not taking away from it. And so any sort of protest that degrades, any sort of protest that is through degrading words where you're cursing people out, that's absolutely unbiblical. You are in sin. And I don't care if you go to violence or not at that point, you're in sin by doing that. That is not what we're called to do. Three, the overall commands to believers concerning government are summed up in commands of 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, to pray for the government officials that we may be able to lead a quiet and peaceful life under them. there's nothing about, well, yeah, go and attack the government because uh, we need to lead a a quiet and peaceful life. No, it's praying for them. Uh, And then it's submitting to them, uh, as Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and 3 say, that we honor and obey them so that perhaps without a word we may win them over, just like the wife under the governing authority of a husband who's not uh, actually doing all that's, that's right. For if one can escape violence, either from the government or others, When he is innocent of any true crimes, he can and should do so without the use of violence. Uh, You know, so if, as Kenny Rogers says, you know, walk away from trouble if you can. The idea is that you, you want to be able to walk away. If you can escape, if you can hide, if you're not really guilty of crime, you can even hide from government. That's what the Christians did. Paul does this in Acts. He escapes through a window because he's not really guilty. But if government has you, you're not to be violent. You're not to be violent against others in that regard uh, who are in government. And if you can walk away from people who even aren't in government, you should. You're not to be a brawler. You're not to want to get into a fight. It doesn't matter. A bruised ego is easily healed much more than an actual bruise. Walk away if you can walk away. Get away. Slip away if you can. Avoid the fight. It's only when it's necessary that you use violence. 
Finally, five, when the act of self-defense toward individuals who are not in authority over us is necessary, it is a matter of Christian love toward God and his people to use violence in order to quell it. So I think pacifists have confused the spheres in which violence is warranted and when it is not, and therefore lack nuance in their approach to the subject by just thinking that all violence toward anyone is wrong for the New Testament Christian. So it's just this blanket statement uh, without any sort of nuance whatsoever. This lack of nuance leaves us with a finicky God who changes what is loving and changes what is right between the Testaments and disallows us to truly love God and our neighbor by employing the creation mandate uh, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to seek and protect his covenant human images in the world who represent him in this dark place. So I think the motivating factor, again, is letting our love for God and love for neighbor be guided by the principle of the creation mandate to create and preserve covenant human life. And if you are in a situation where covenant human life is threatened and it's not legitimately threatened by a governing authority and you have the, you have the ability to defend, you absolutely are required to do so. And to not do so, you are being unchristian. You are in sin. So I am not here today to tell you, well, pacifism is just another view. No, it isn't. It's wicked. Pacifism is not just another view. It's not just another Christian viewpoint simply because there have been Christians who hold it. It's sin. Does that mean you're not a Christian? No. There are plenty of people who are Christians who are in sin. I'm sure they are deceived. Uh, I would actually say that if you're deceived in the matter and you don't know it's sin, then you're more in a trespass than a sin. But still, uh, you are you are in sin. You are in, uh, in a trespass. And you should ask God for forgiveness for that. Seek to defend your family. Defend yourself as God tells you to do so, I think, through the creation mandate and as love requires. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we, th- we thank you again for your word. We understand that this is difficult. I'm sure those who hold to a pacifist position or a non-resistance position do not like this message. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is what is loving according to what you've revealed in the creation mandate, which governs all law, which governs all moral principles of what Christians should do from, from the earliest times to, to today and into the future, Lord. It, it is never ending. And so while creation is in the process of being meted out through your work, we also join you in seeking to create and preserve your covenant people. Father, you have given us that sword as individuals over ourselves, as governing individuals over our household. And if we are in government, we have that sword. If we are in the army, we have that sword and that right to defend. And that is just and right and loving to do so. We thank you, Lord, that we might see in Scripture a rebuke of where our culture has gone. And truly, it has made all the Christians uh, passive, and yet the unbelievers have become emboldened to use violence now so that ultimately your people will, in fact, if they adopt the pacifist viewpoint, be wiped away. Lord, help them understand that they should defend themselves from such tyranny of the masses. We thank you again and seek to love and glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.